Welcome to Holy Unhappiness, conversations about the expectations we have of what the life of faith will feel like. I'm your host, Amanda Held Opelt, author of the book, Holy Unhappiness, God, Goodness, and the Myth of the Blessed Life. Each week, I'll be speaking with writers, pastors, artists, and friends about the myths we believe about the good life. Together, we'll reimagine what blessing can look like if we are willing to look beyond our culture's definition of happiness and success. Welcome. I'm glad you're here. to the podcast today, we are going to be talking about hope. Hope is one of these blessings that I write about in one of those mini chapters in my book. And I know for me, something that has always helped my heart turn from despair to hope is seeing God's work around the world, seeing the church at work around the world, seeing joy and resilience in places that some people would say are marginalized or desperate. And so today I've invited Matthew Sorens onto the podcast. Matthew Sorens serves as the Vice President of Advocacy and Policy for World Relief. Now let me tell you a little bit about World Relief. I'm such a fan of this organization. My church partners with them here in the triad supporting refugees. We also partner with them in their work in Rwanda. World Relief is a global Christian humanitarian organization whose mission is to empower the local church to serve the most vulnerable. The organization was actually founded in the aftermath of World War II to respond to the urgent humanitarian needs of war-torn Europe. And since then, for over 75 years across 100 countries, World Relief has partnered with local churches and communities to develop sustainable, locally-driven solutions to some of our world's greatest problems. And so Matthew serves as the VP of advocacy for them, and he's also the national coordinator for the Evangelical Immigration Table, a coalition of evangelical organizations of which World Relief is a founding member. He previously served as a Department of Justice accredited immigration legal counselor for World Relief's local office in suburban Chicago. He is the uh, co-author of several books, uh, including Inalienable, uh, which is a book that I am reading. This is Inalienable, How Marginalized Kingdom Voices Can Help Save the American Church, which he co-wrote with Daniel Yang and Eric Costanza. He has also written for various print and online publications, uh, and he earned his bachelor's degree from Wheaton College, where he has served as an adjunct faculty member for the Humanitarian and Disaster Leadership Graduate Program. He also earned a master's degree from DePaul University School of Public Service. 
He's originally from Wisconsin, but now he calls uh, Aurora, Illinois, his home where he lives with his wife and four children. I'm really glad to have him on. Matthew, thank you so much for being on the podcast with me today. It's great to be with you, Amanda. Um, so I am finishing up your book, Inalienable, uh, and I I was kind of reading at the beginning, you give this kind of brief summary of, of your life when you're growing up experiences, and it is oddly similar to mine. <laughs> and we both kind of grew up non-denominational, pledging allegiance to the B-I-B-L-E. Um, you, were, you say you were kind of a Sunday school all-star. <laughs> Um, which I feel I think I I quoted Paul in that you know like (laughs) go on boasting like my credentials but like I was the kid who won all the prizes for memorizing bible verses and um, you know probably some unhealthy pride in that but that was just you know a a very core part of my childhood and and in many ways something I'm actually really grateful for like I have a lot of scripture memorized in my head that I memorized when I was 10 years old that I go back to on a regular basis well, if I'm going to boast in my credentials, then I, I will say that my nickname as a kid was Miss Awana. Um, if, if, <laughs> if my listeners aren't familiar with Awana, it's uh, this Bible memorization program that a lot of non-denominational churches did. And yeah, that was back in the day when we used to get like prizes for mm-hmm. being good people or like actual mm-hmm. prizes, <laughs> ribbons and candy. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I was... I definitely, I definitely dominated my peers uh, in Bible memorization and sword drills. Um, but then you also went on to attend uh, Evangelical Christian College. Uh, I did the same. Um, but you write that it was really an encounter with the global church that led you to maybe think outside the box of your upbringing just a little bit. Uh, and you eventually began a vocational career in the international aid realm, uh, just like I did. And so I feel, yeah, I just feel this kinship with you. And, and so if you're okay with it, I wanted to begin by asking you just a little, like some personal questions about how that work has impacted you. Because when you work in aid or you work in the helping profession, you're always within this close cognitive proximity to, to suffering. Like your work actually revolves around global crises. Uh, and and human suffering at a large scale. So I I'm just kind of curious how that consistent exposure to to suffering and to need has been spiritually formative for you. Yeah, you know, there's a few different uh, ways that I would say that's been true for me. I mean, most of my work with World Relief has been focused on the U.S. side of what we do, which is around refugees and, and immigration. So it's people from other parts of the world who have often gone through really. Rem- remarkable suffering of different mm-hmm. varieties, some of which technically classifies them as a refugee having fled persecution. Others was really just extreme poverty. Other was, you know, complex family dynamics that they felt that they needed to, to move. Um, but actually some of my first exposure to some of these issues was um, I, as, as a college student at Wheaton college, mm-hmm. I spent six months interning in Nicaragua mm-hmm. And with World Relief, actually, that was my introduction to the organization and where I really fell in love with the mission of World Relief. But I was living with a family who I'm still really connected to mm-hmm. 20, almost 20 years later. Yeah. Um, and early on in, in my time with living with that family, they had a, an old, their two sons, their older son, Silvio, um, was just almost exactly my age. So we kind of mm-hmm. became friends and he was, you know, I remember praying before that trip that God would just give me one good friend in Nicaragua. Yeah. And I, I had that in Silvio. Um, and when I met Sylvia, they kind of explained to me like, oh, and he had cancer, but like now he's better and God healed mm. him. Like, 
that's like a thing in the past, which was good to hear because nobody, you know, cancer sounds bad. Yeah. Um, but it was only a few months after I got there that his cancer came back. It was a form wow. of leukemia. And, wow. um, you know, even just in that six months that I was there, I ended up spending a lot of time in a not very nice hospital in mm-hmm. Nicaragua um, with Silvio, just not able to help in any practical way at all, but just mm-hmm. kind of sitting there with him. Because it turns out I wasn't great at my internship either. Um, but, you know, <laughs> trying to, you know accompany him through some things and um sylvia ended up passing away a few months after i got back to the united states and i was able to go back uh, for the funeral and um i think that's part of why i'm still so close to his family to his his Mm. parents um and in hindsight i learned that actually like nobody with that kind of leukemia survives in nicaragua like that's global inequities it's hard to beat in the united states but people do beat it but without access to some of the you know medical interventions Barring a miracle, and you know, these are people who believe in miracles probably yeah. more than most American Christians do. Sure, um, but um, you know, I'd say that one, that six months there, and the the ongoing relationship with that family, I remember sort of you know having this sort of argument with God after Silvio passed away, and it's like this is so unfair. Like what? Yeah. You know, like, if this had happened to me, we have insurance, and like there might have been possibilities, and yet I don't think I ever considered sort of like if God let this happen, then God isn't real in part because Silvio's family never seemed to consider that, you know, like their faith was so strong in the midst of that illness. And then after Silvio went, to, you know, into the presence of Jesus, which is an, obviously a, an eternal hope that they take very seriously. And I do too. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think that experience of suffering, which for me was, you know, I was 22 and um, I don't think mm. I'd known anyone close besides my great grandmother who had died, you know, like, yeah, um, and in a context of really horrible inequities in global health, you know, like mm-hmm. it was, it was very eye opening to realize like, oh, this was, you know, there's not the same medical access in Nicaragua that there is in the United States. And that was very formative for me, but it was my, the faith. My, my friends are, they're Baptists. They go to, you know, a little evangelical church in Nicaragua Yeah, that I felt like I got to be a part of for the six months I was there. Um, it was very formative for just how I think about suffering and what it means to um, to enter into suffering and to walk mm. alongside people. And one of my goals in my work with World Relief, where you know I've been in different roles, right now I'm most I'm more likely to talk to a member of Congress on an average day for my job than mm. to a you know a, a recently arrived refugee. But it's been really important to me to stay connected even beyond my job. Like my wife and I go to a Spanish speaking church where mm. we're interacting with people who some 25 years ago, some two weeks ago have migrated for different reasons and to keep the people at the center of, you know, big policy questions are important to me. I really think that my faith compels me to speak into those. And we believe that at world belief, it's part of our sort of view of integral mission, but I don't want to ever get so like 20,000 feet that you lose. the. Mm. Yeah. I'm feeling a little emotional hearing you talk for some reason. Cause I, again, I, I had a very similar experience at my, my senior year in college. I did a six month internship in India. And for part of the time I was there, I lived with a family and, um, they, Augustine Asir and his, and his family, my, my daughter, my four year old, uh, well, she just turned five last week. Jane Augustine, she's named after them because I'm still in relationship with them. And, um, they had a son with my age with cerebral palsy. And again, same, same type of situation where I'm thinking this isn't fair. Like I would, I traveled all over the country with them via train mm-hmm. and I would watch them, 
uh, wheel him through train stations and see, you know, in that country, um, people have a lot of disdain and disgust towards people with disabilities and they were very overt about it. And to watch that family just shower him with hugs and kisses in public intentionally to show their, their love and to see what a strong, resilient person he was. But I remember thinking, this isn't fair. Like I was angry at God that this was the situation that he had been born into with little access to robust medical care and such discrimination. And yet that family never seemed angry with God for their situation. They ha- maintain this really um, inspirational sense of hope. And and that, I, I mean, if I could give anyone any advice, like if you're leaving college or you're going into your professional work career, like if you can spend time with the global church, not in like a, gosh, I hate to say this is like aid tourism, like be, be cautious about that or missions tourism or being too voyeuristic about suffering. But if you can be mentored by someone who is in a church context that is that is global, that's in a different, that has different privileges than you do, that has different access to resources and just see what faith and hope can look like in those contexts, it is a lifelong investment. And in a lot of ways, I think my deconstruction journey, like I've been through seasons of doubt and and things, moments where I'm not sure about my faith. It was cushioned by that experience in the global church because I knew that my faith was so much bigger than American Christianity. And it saved, in many ways, it saved my faith, if that makes sense, you know? Yeah, I can very much resonate. I mean, I, you know, I, especially in the last few years, I've had, you know, lots of questions about American Christianity and American evangelicalism <laughs> in particular. Yeah. And I'm still part of it, you know, like that. I'm Yeah, I get like, it. <laughs> I'm from, um, and I'm not disowning those theological beliefs in any way. Mm-hmm. Um, work for a, a, an organization that is the humanitarian arm of the National Association of Evangelicals. You know, like yeah, that's, yeah. I'm deep into it, and yet it, it has been really important to me that the, even American evangelicalism is a lot more than the white evangelical political category that like pollsters use. And exactly. Then much beyond that, you know, most most evangelical Christians in the world are not in the United States. Right. Um, they're in Africa or Latin America or Asia mm-hmm. um, and in the United States. And that's not to like diminish the contribution mm-hmm. of American evangelical Christians, yeah. just to say that in a very one-sided way that our, you know, my friends in Nicaragua don't have this delusion. Mm-hmm. Um, we can easily think we're the center of the world. Yeah. Or at least the center of the church, like everything yeah. emanates, out, emanates out from here. Uh, and the, the really dangerous and pernicious problem there is the tendency to think that we have a lot to offer and nothing to learn. Yeah, that's right. And yeah. It's not that yeah. we don't have anything to offer. I mean, I think we do, um, yeah. but we also have a lot to learn. And frankly, the American church is relatively sick right now. And there's mm. a great need um, to be strengthened and um, through mutual relationship with with other parts of the body of Christ and other parts of the world. And we often don't even know that those parts of the body exist. Like still yeah. so many well-meaning American Christians think about Africa as the mission field. Yeah. Um, sort of recognizing like large sections of Africa are far more Christian in many, many ways than the United States of America. Like just looking yeah. at the number of people who are in church on average Sunday, yeah. but also like theological depth. Um, yeah. There's a lot of, a lot that the U S has to learn. Um, from many different parts of the world. It's not, you know, one place only, but and not that they don't have their problems either. Like, that, yeah. Yeah, of course they do. Um, it's a, a collection of people who are sinful people who've, you know, are, are fallen and yet also people who are made in the image of God and who, who have been reborn into, into Christ, you know, by the Holy spirit. And we're 
it's just really tragic if we miss out on thinking that, you know, on the, the riches that the global church has to offer. Mm-hmm. And some of that comes then to the U.S. in the form of migration. Like that's, yeah. you can experience that by going living abroad, but also like you might experience it by going across the street to the neighbor who moved in from somewhere else in the world. Yeah. A, a church denomination that is different from yours. I, I, I worked in uh, an urban context in Nashville uh, after I got back from India and, and being part of, uh, you know, AME churches and, 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 and hanging out with, with people that were part of this, this again, very robust black church presence in Nashville that I had just never been exposed to and seeing, you know, the way they approach suffering and the way they maintain their hope and the way they approach justice and, and things like that was, again, really was a cushion for me, I think, as I moved into my 30s and this season of deconstruction, I think many of us are in and, and that the, the church in America is in. It's like I had this kind of tether to something um bigger, deeper, more historic, more, um, more broad, more diverse, um, than, than just my, my upbringing in Awana land. Um, and again, it's not, I'm grateful for Awana. I am grateful for the experiences that I had, but, uh, but the church is so much more. There's, a, yeah, that, this great quote in, inalienable, um, to the extent, this, this is what y'all write, to the extent they think of them at all, American Christians have far too often made the mistake of viewing Christians from other parts of the world as our little brothers and sisters, quotations, as yeah. if they are less equipped by the Holy Spirit because they have fewer resources and smaller theological libraries. Um, yeah, I, I, I want to hear from you. What, what might the seemingly prosperous American church learn from the global church or or work in places that that are maybe more marginalized people who are more marginalized or places that are more perilous what have you learned what do we have to learn yeah i mean i put that little brothers and sisters in christ in quotes because it literally came from a conversation with a a former colleague joseph uh, bataille who led world release work in haiti for many years Mm -hmm. and um and i I interviewed Joseph as a part of this project and he, you know, he's actually Haitian American. So he's a U.S. <laughs> citizen, but he's born in Haiti and came actually, I think, I forget if his family got asylum or exactly what his family mm. story was, but they lived in, he was basically educated in the United States and went back to Haiti and led World Relief work there for many years. Mm. Um, and it, his was one, of, I, we, I did so many interviews for this book and my, my co-authors did as well, but his was a particularly rich conversation on that theme of like, and he's lived in both contexts. So he, he understands the U S very well. He's a U.S. citizen at this point, but you know, he brought up like, you know, in Haiti, there's a number of things that he thinks the American church is, is missing among them, mm-hmm. a reliance on prayer mm-hmm. that like we turn to prayer as sort of maybe a last resort. Like, yeah. you know, if you're sick once all the medications have been tried and you've got this, you know, nothing worked in terms of modern medicine, then we might, Mm-hmm. really turn to prayer like we kind of casually pray before that but or, or i mean he gave an example like we have these in, in some of the church he pastored in haiti they had these like all-night prayer vigils and tons of people <laughs> them. you know like yeah i was part of those in india i was the one falling asleep at 2 a.m and everybody else was like doing great well i mean in my spanish-speaking church here in aurora illinois uh, we you know we had one of these not well it was, it was a few years ago and uh, we were new to the church and i was like but like, are they serious? Like all, you know, like, yeah, <laughs> like, like, what are we going to pray about for more than like 30 minutes? You know, like, right, and right. It turns out that um, people have learned to rely on God in prayer in ways that is, is a muscle that's, I think, underused in a lot of, I don't want to say all, mm-hmm. but a lot of American Christian traditions. Um, 
and yeah, just there. And, and again, Joseph would say like, he is grateful for Americans who come to Haiti, you know, on some sort of like a, a mission trip, that sort of thing. He had very charitable things to say, probably more charitable than I might, but he said, <laughs> it's, you know, one, it's this presumption that we're, we have everything and they have nothing and we're here to share with them because it is a very poor country. And the presumption yeah. is that carries through to like theological wealth as well, that we have a lot to mm-hmm. teach you because, you know, we have systematic theology books and maybe you need mm-hmm. some of our old theolo- systematic theology books. Um, mm-hmm. And actually they have the Holy Spirit just like we do. And I mean, one of the things he said is the really traffic thing is it's, you'd often hear mission groups come like short-term trips come and say like, well, it's just such a surprise because we thought we were here to bless them. But it, it was, you know, we couldn't have imagined that they would bless us. And he said, the really tragic thing is you couldn't imagine that, you know, like it didn't right. occur to you that might be the case. And, right. and yet you say the same thing every trip. Um, but we still have a hard yeah. time, you know, really coming to the, to that reality that we are brothers and sisters in Christ on an equal playing field under, yeah. you know, under the same father in heaven. So like, but it's not this hierarchy that, you know, I think is sort of built into American presumptions often sort of subconsciously like we don't we wouldn't articulate it that way mm-hmm. but the approach to the rest of the world um and i think you see this in our approach to the black church in the united states which is not an immigrant church uh, for the most part yeah. in our immigrant category but um or or to various you know categories of you know more recent arrivals to the united states whether latin america or asian uh, asian american churches is this sort of, you know, maybe you need to borrow our space. And like, it is true. There's often fewer economic resources. Like mm-hmm. most immigrant mm-hmm. pastors that I know are bivocational. They work this 40 yeah. hour job and then, you know, pastor a congregation where their responsibilities are way beyond what most white pastors have because they're yeah. also sort of a social worker and the, you know, the yeah. cultural is on to the community. Yeah. 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 That's true. There's fewer resources, but it doesn't mean there's less um, spiritual wealth and theological depth. Yeah. Yeah, that's so true. Well, and again, I, this the, the, the uh, title of this podcast is Hope. I, I think about the hope that is maintained in the midst of suffering. I, I just know that for me, I, I, I what has stayed with me in, in over the years, I had 10 years of working in, in, in aid was seeing, and I, I need to be very clear that I was not a proper aid worker. I was like, I did staff care for international aid workers, which, which meant that I, um, you know, was able to travel to the field and to disaster zones quite a bit. But I just want to be very clear that I did, I saved no one's life during the course of my, my aid work. Um, but, but to see, the resilience of I, I, that word resilience, I have some mixed feelings about because I don't want to keep putting it on people as if it's their their job to somehow be resilient in the midst of some of these in, incredible injustices and devastation. But it, but just to see that you, you you see just how profound and sturdy people's hope are when they are finding joy in 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 the midst of a refugee camp in the midst of a home that's been devastated by an earthquake in in the midst of um kind of the these circumstances we can hardly imagine as as privileged americans so i don't know like where does that come from? Why is it that we struggle so much with despair here? And I, again, I, I know there there's moments of deep lament and sadness and despair in those situations. But how does how does how do you how have you seen people maintain their hope? What is it that makes that hope uh, thrive? 
Yeah, I think there's, you know, I'm not sure there's one answer and there's different contexts where that's true, but mm -hmm. I think one of the things that's, you know, maybe ironically, we started with like our back, our shared background in, in the scriptures. Mm -hmm. That's what gives a lot of people hope. And I think yeah. honestly, sometimes in the U.S., we think we know the Bible, but if you pull the average, you know, self-identified American evangelical Christian, like biblical literacy is actually fairly shallow, mm -hmm. um, not, not without beautiful exceptions, but like yeah. overall, it's a, you know, it's not, uh, it, it's a fairly shallow faith that we, mm -hmm. you know, we've sometimes inherited or taken on. Yeah. And that, you know, not that it, there's, that there's variations in, in different parts of the world, of course, but I've just met so many believers in other contexts who, uh, who know their Bible so well and yeah. who maybe read it a little bit differently than I do yeah. because of their cultural context. And yeah. I mean, lament is a great example of that. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I didn't grow up with this idea of lament. I, I think I encountered that probably in college and there's some great mm -hmm. writers on that theme. Um, but it, it starts with the Bible, right? I mean, like what share of the Psalms are Psalms of lament. But one third. Are, yeah. Yeah. I mean, those are not often the ones we read in church on a Sunday morning, yeah. maybe in some churches they do not the ones I recall going up in yeah you know, we were much more likely to focus on sort of the celebratory you know at, at worshiping god which is also part of psalms and also appropriate mm -hmm. and yet this the lament like genre teaches us how to worship god in the midst of suffering mm -hmm. and if we're not yeah. you know if we're not trained in that language we don't know what to do when real suffering yeah. comes which even in a wealthy and you know nice society like the united states of america eventually does like mm -hmm. there's that's right and i think that is actually a gift that you know many parts of the global church have mm -hmm. to give the American church is to you know to be reacquainted with that biblical mm -hmm. language of, of lament. Yeah, because lament allows you to name, I think, the reality of suffering. And, and, and whereas I think in America we resist it, we 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 feel kind of embarrassed when something bad happens to us or embarrassed by our sadness. Whereas I think in these other cultures where I've seen, and this is making sweeping generalizations, but when you live in, again, that close proximity to suffering, you, you just have to call it like it is. And, and I, I've seen women wailing in war zones and, and then they're able to kind of, because it's almost like it's named and it's, it's accepted and it's, it's shared together and held together it's is it, it is it is from that soil then that hope communally um, is grown again, if that makes sense. Just in I, America, I, we we're embarrassed to admit how vulnerable we are. I think that's exactly true, and and I also think it feels somehow like God can't handle our honest opinions, so mm. we want to like, you know tone it down a little bit. Um, and actually, God is very capable of handling our <laughs> our honest you know feelings, like He yeah. already knows anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah. But being able to articulate that in it, it's almost it, it's almost a complaint to God, and yet it's a faithful complaint in that there's, you're still in conversation, you know, instead yeah. of shutting down the conversation altogether. And again, this isn't like, you know, you don't need to talk to a psychologist to come to this. You need to read the Psalms, and yeah. you know, there's a whole book of Lamentations, and and yeah. you know, I think there's a lot there biblically uh, that can guide us in how to yeah. do that. Yeah. Well, you do a lot in your work with World Relief to equip American churches to be educated about the stories of, um, you know, refugees and, and people who are, are, are fleeing, uh, warfare and persecution around the world. And, and you, you equip American churches to welcome and to serve, um, these folks, you know, 
what is it that you're seeing within the American church? Because there is a lot of conversation right now. I mean, I feel like the, the main story right now in Christendom in America is the failure of the American church, the abuses that are being exposed, the celebrity, uh, Christian celebrity failures, the falls from grace. Where are you seeing hope and, and what gives you hope for the American church? Yeah, you know, I mean, one thing I love about about the work that we do at World Relief and what has kept me there for, you know, 17, 18 years now, is our mission is really focused on the local church and mm-hmm. on those experiencing vulnerability. So, like, mm-hmm. those are sort of, a, you know, we were on both of those themes. But even in, t- like, of course, like, you know, the American church has not welcomed refugees across the board in perfect ways. And, you know, there's been discouraging seasons where it felt like a large share of the American church was uninterested in welcoming refugees. But even then, and I do feel like it's actually swung back and there's polling on this that gives me Mm. some hope. I think actually the majority of of American evangelicals are pretty supportive of refugee resettlement right now. We've got Mm. polls to say that. But that's good to hear. Yeah, um, Mm. And to be very honest, it has more to do probably with Refugees in our mind being Afghans who serve the U.S. military mm-hmm. and Ukrainians who look a lot like us than it does with a revival if we read our Bibles. You know, like, unfortunately, mm-hmm. that's actually what needs to make it sustainable. But even, you know, five years ago, there was some really horrible polling that, you know, basically only about a quarter of American, at least among white evangelicals, who were supportive of a refugee or settlement, which was kind of a gut punch to us at World Relief. Like, that's mm-hmm. what we do. I mean, I yeah. we're, you know, some... We're essentially in the U.S. side of our work. It's a lot of it is we're an evangelical organization that settles refugees. And I would meet people who were not Christians who'd be like, "Is that an oxymoron? Like evangelicals who love yeah. refugees? Like is that yeah. a thing?" Yeah. And yet, in that twenty-five percent or so, we work with some amazing churches who, um, and not all evangelical. We work with you know a broad range of churches, but yeah. primarily evangelical churches that are just really sacrificially caring for people, and in the process building these mutual relationships where, again, it's almost a cliche, like they're, you know, receiving more than they give, but in a good relational way where Mm. they're recognizing that they have a lot to receive from often brothers and sisters in Christ, but also from people who don't yet know Jesus, um, Mm. but have been made in his, made in the image of God and our neighbors whom we're called to love. And, you know, I, I think that is part of the work that I love at World Relief. And my job at World Relief for the number of years has actually been like, a few steps ahead of where churches are welcoming refugees or immigrants to be reminding them theologically and missiologically of why they should be engaged in that work, which Hmm. I think one of the lessons of last decade or so for us at World Relief is to some extent, I think we used to presume that that was sort of obvious. So we could Hmm. focus equipping churches by like the how of refugee or immigrant ministry, like cross-cultural ministry, you know, guidelines and explaining these processes but we didn't spend a lot of time on the why, yeah. but um, that was probably a mistake because there's a lot of evidence that the American church has not been very well discipled on this particular theme of how do we think about issues of migration yeah. and not because the Bible doesn't say anything on that, uh, but yeah. they weren't the verses that I memorized as a kid. You know, I don't mm-hmm. remember memorizing verses about how to treat the foreigner, not yeah. because they're not there, but yeah. you know, who knows the bias involved in what children versus children learn. And maybe that was just my experience, but I think it's, there's a lot of evidence even in terms of research um, about 20% of American evangelicals say that the Bible is the primary factor influencing their view on the arrival of immigrants to their community. When, wow. you know, they're, evangelicals know that like the Bible is supposed to be the answer. So like, even if it wasn't totally <laughs> That's true, like one of their core, like, yeah, like <laughs> founding I mean, principles. 
that you know even if it's not totally true you'd expect people to check that box on a survey question at least admit it at least pretend yeah, um, but it i mean they acknowledge uh, a higher share of evangelicals say the media and this is the most important factor than those who say the bible and that's mm. uh, that's messed up so we have yeah. to work to do there yeah. Well, I just, I love, you know, I, I got to hear you come and do a talk here in my, my town in Boone, uh, at, at a local church and, and, and our church supports world relief. Um, I love what you're doing in the way of education for people who want to learn more, for people who want to maybe, um, do that hard internal work of, of uncovering some of maybe their biases or, or their, um, you know, their, their ignorance, even in the stories of people who are, are seeking refuge. And so if, if anyone here is listening, uh, and, and they're interested in the work of world relief, how can they get involved? Where can they find you all? How can their churches get involved? Yeah. Um, so worldrelief.org, our website, we've got lots of resources, um, both for individuals and also specifically for churches. In fact, we have a whole set of like online learning opportunities, mm-hmm. uh, we call the workshop. Uh, there's one on, uh, how do we think about immigration from a biblical perspective? And then there's some of the more practical tools too, like, okay, we're welcoming Afghans, what do I need to know about Afghan culture or mm-hmm. Ukrainian culture or Syrian culture to do this in a way that is, you know, is respectful of these neighbors who are, mm-hmm. you know, who've undergone a lot of really traumatic circumstances in most cases. Um, so th- there's a bunch of resources there. And, you know, from a tiny church to a large church, we you know have all sorts of ways that a church could engage um, both in terms of welcoming refugees and other immigrants in the U S but also, you know, a lot of our work is, interacting with these themes of migration, but outside of the United States as well. Mm-hmm. And even addressing some of those dynamics that often, unfortunately, eventually cause migration. Mm-hmm. So like, how do we get ahead of, uh, of conflict in, in communities before it creates a civil war where people have to leave? Yeah. Or how do we make, you know, agriculture sustainable in a way that it's possible to stay home? Not that we, you know, we love to welcome people here, but it's always a tragedy when people feel that they have no choice but to leave their homeland. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, our church is pretty involved in your work in Rwanda to that to that end. One of our elders is a survivor of the Rwanda genocide. And so just to be able to be involved in that side of things as well has been um, just really encouraging for, for our church family. Um, I want to close with this is a question I ask all of my guests. Um, and, and I'm, I'm guessing that your interactions with the global church and with refugees has certainly shaped this. But as you have grown in your walk with the Lord and in your journey of faith, how has your understanding of happiness or abundance or prosperity changed or evolved? Yeah, you know, I think one thing that occurs to me. I mean, working with immigrants, there's you know you meet a lot of people who are on this sort of I'm looking for the American dream, like mm. roughly maybe there's different versions of that, but like a better life, you know, usually in economic terms, mm-hmm. we're gonna have the house and the car and the two and a half children or whatever, and we're not gonna be you know we'll never want for anything. And one of the things I've found working and and living closely among a lot of immigrants is. I mean, there are economic opportunities in the United States and many of them are able to realize that. And some of them in doing so realize that actually that's doesn't buy you the happiness that, mm-hmm. <laughs> that you don't. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's absolutely something to be said for not living in desperate poverty and yes. having your basic needs met. Yeah. Um, but there's sort of a limiting point there where that you don't get any happier by having more once, yeah. you, you know, and I think that's actually been, um, you know, been something I've been able to sort of learn vicariously is there's more to happiness than accumulating resources and accumulating stuff. Hmm. Um, And in so many ways, I think a lot of Americans are actually profoundly lonely in a way that I'm sure happens in some other parts of the world, but 
people in much of the rest of the world are in much more community oriented societies mm -hmm. where people are less lonely because they have deep, you know, profound connections, even a, like a stronger sense of family that goes beyond your spouse and your own minor children. Mm -hmm. um, but then just, a, you know, a larger sense of family and then just even the church. I mean, in the church I go to, you know, it's, I could call their mono all the time, like brother. Yeah. And at first I thought that was because they didn't remember my name, but um, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's actually very genuine, I think. And, yeah. you know, there's Christian traditions, obviously this is drawn right from the New Testament, but there's a real seriousness to this idea of like, we're connected because we're part of the body of Christ. And yeah. there's a joy to be found there that comes actually when we're bearing with each other in both joy uh, and in suffering mm -hmm. and um, doing those things together. Yeah. Other places in the world that may not be as wealthy monetarily, monetarily, but um, there's wealth in communal love that I think we are starting to lose maybe here in this country. So um, that is that's well said. And and thank you. Thank you so much for your work, for the advocacy that you do. And um, it just the, the way you you speak uh, on this this matter, I think, is so important and so needed in this moment in history. So um, I'll be sure to, to direct everyone's attention and the show notes and things like that to World Relief and how they can get get involved. But thank you so much for your time and for being here with me today. Yeah, thank you, Matt. It's good to be with you. Romans 8. 22 through 25 says, We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. For who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. I write in my book, We may think we are people who have found the secret to filling that God-shaped hole in our hearts. But we live with another void, another cavern of unmet desire that the secular world may never fully experience. Through Jesus, we've seen what righteousness and justice actually look like. Being a person of hope means we live with an abiding frustration with how things are, because we are keenly aware of exactly how things should be. Sometimes, being people of hope means living with a righteous indignation, at injustice, at oppression, at abuse. We are people of anticipation, of longing, of eagerness. We are people of the wilderness, of exile. As believers, we are often reminded of how frequently the Bible commands us to fear not and to be anxious for nothing. Fear and anxiety are thought to be the result of a fickle faith, the byproduct of a bad theology. Despite my theological rigor, I've struggled mightily to coax my fears into subsiding. Anxiety is persistent, innovative, sly. While God is patient with our fear, I do think he entreats us not to despair. Lately, it has helped me to think of fear and hope less as thoughts that live in my mind and more as actions that live in my body. Fear, I think, will always occupy space in my brain, but it doesn't have to animate my hands, my feet, or my mouth. 
and hope must do more than enliven my thoughts. It must set my body in motion. This invitation to not despair, it is not a severe imperative, as if we are in danger of the fire of hell if fear sometimes gets the better of us. No, it is a kind invitation, a steady hand reaching out to us as if to say, trust me. All is not lost. The beautiful proposition of hope is our truest, purest calling. Thank you for joining us. I hope you tune in next time for our last episode. I'm going to be discussing the afterword of my book with my two close friends and pastors, Ethan and Graham. Graham.